Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. pleasure of talking with five of the seven amazing women who make up the anti-racist art teachers. A few months ago, Paula Lees, an art teacher based just outside of Washington, D.C., started compiling resources on anti-racism to aid her in sharing with fellow art teachers. This grew into a Google site and now lives at antiracistartteachers.org. As the project grew in scope, Paula Lees also began collaborating with like-minded art teachers. The anti-racist art teachers are currently Paula Lees, Nyla Khan, Francesca Levy, Khadijah Latimer, Tamara Slade, Dr. Lori Santos, and Abby Berhanyu. They represent an incredible range of backgrounds in terms of race and ethnicity, teaching styles, grade levels, experience, and location. Their bios, as well as individual contact info, can be found on their website under the Contact tab. Nyla and Francesca weren't able to join us for this conversation, but they were there in spirit. I am in awe and very grateful to these teachers for sharing so much actionable advice. They have created and are continuing to add to an incredible resource for art teachers and really for any teacher or even parent seeking information and lesson plans around anti-racist education. Visit antiracistartteachers.org to check it out. You can find lesson plans, curated lists of resources and artists, and now artist interviews. If you have lessons to share, you can also submit them there. Before we dive into this conversation, here is a brief statement from them. What does fighting racism have to do with art education? everything. As art educators, we have the power to see color, to value all students, to create a safe space, to form a more fair and just future. We recognize the texture of human life to step beyond the line and learn to shape new perspectives through art education. A future without racism can begin in the art classroom. We can be part of the change. Join us. We are anti-racist art teachers. This is a little different from the other episodes I've done where I'm talking with like one person and really focusing on their art practice as well as their teaching. But I thought this was really important to talk about. And I'm so excited that you were willing to come on and have a discussion and kind of share the work that you've been doing. So I like to start always just with backgrounds. And I think that makes sense here, too. So maybe we could do like brief backgrounds, just kind of going around and sharing what you teach, what age levels and your teaching style in a nutshell. And then also whether or not you make your own artwork, because that's something that's always interesting. So those two kind of things you're teaching and your artwork, if you could share that in as brief as possible, <laughs> just for time. Hi, my name is Paul Lise, and I was born in Puerto Rico, but I grew up in Maryland. I went to school at MICA in Baltimore. I've taught it 
in New York City, Austin, Texas, Washington, D.C., at charter private schools, public schools, and I'm now an elementary pre-K through five art teacher in Maryland. And yes, I do and have and still do make my own art. Awesome. I guess I'll go next. Um, my name is Khadija Latimer, and I teach in South Carolina. This will be my fourth year teaching, and I am currently teaching at two different schools. Both of them are elementary, mm-hmm. kindergarten through fifth grade. I do create art in my free time, but it's not anything super serious. I am more or less being more intentional about trying to create something every day. And that's pretty much it about me. Nice. Thank you. Well, my name is Avi Brahanu, and I am originally from Ethiopia. I came to the States when I was nine. I always loved art. It was my way of communicating with people when I honestly couldn't speak English. And that's really about the time when I started discovering my artist's identity, I guess. I still do make art. It's a big part of my life, although I'm really busy with two toddlers at home. So that's kind of hindered my art making and process. I teach high school, 9 through 12, and I teach drawing, AP, the gambit, art one, art two, graphic. I've taught it all pretty much and will teach whatever is coming. And then I would say, I don't know if you asked about teaching style yet, and I'll talk about that later when we get to it. But yeah, that's where I am. Awesome. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Santos, and I teach at Wichita State University. Uh, I work with pre-service students who are going into the field of art education. So my background is kind of mixed. My parents are from Hawaii. Um, I also have heritage in Portugal, Puerto Rico, and Native American. I use a lot of that sort of storytelling and iconography from my family and my own artwork, and I'm a painter. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tamara Slade. I am a multiple subject teacher. And so I've taught fifth grade, fourth grade, second and first. And I've been teaching for about four years. But I guess before that, the the six years before that, I was working with kids. And so that's kind of how I, I got into education. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. So yeah, I guess the next question I had was your methodology. Are any of you tab teachers teaching for artistic behavior? or do you follow different sort of styles? Is there a variety here or? Sure, yeah. I started dabbling in tab because that's what you do to start with because it is very (laughs) scary at first to give students full choice. I think most art educators teach some type of choice-based art. Uh, From my conversations with a lot of educators, they give choice, but to give full choice (laughs) is extremely scary. And so I've been dabbling in it now for three years, and I'm progressively climbing up that spectrum of choice-based art and trying to get to the very top. But I teach a mixture, I would say. And we'll talk about this later, but a part of offloading, what we call offloading and tab teaching is skills. But I also like to offload art history, offload Mm -hmm. anti-racist concepts, offload everything. So um, it's an amazing experience. And I've seen my students really enjoy the process and have been more engaged Mm -hmm. than ever before. So I don't think I'll turn back, but it's still something that I'm growing into, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that can take years. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm a little different. I'm more discipline based. I have so, 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 so many kids in my classroom. Not saying that you can't do tab with 
so many children, but for me starting out, I think that that is the best thing for me to do. So I do want to eventually explore doing some things like that with some of my smaller groups, but as of right now, I'm discipline based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's trickier, especially when you're trying to do those Mm -hmm. one-on-one check-ins about what they're making and what their process is. Yeah. That can be really hard with larger groups. Yes, definitely. (laughs) As for me, all my lessons, and I didn't even realize, apparently I fall on the tab spectrum, according to Abby. (laughs) All my lessons are focused on student voice and expression. And I stray away from like the everyone do exactly the same thing. But with the younger students, I do have a lot more structure. And then the older they get is Mm -hmm. when I start to introduce a lot more choice in terms of materials and themes and concepts. Yeah. Awesome. Lori or Tamara, did you want to say anything about methodologies? I know your teaching situations are a little different. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, being in higher ed, I'm I'm working with, with, you know, students who are just beginning their careers. And so I, I take a little bit more of a holistic approach. Personally, for mm-hmm. me, I'm what you would refer to as a constructivist, uh, first of all, because I think mm-hmm. students need to construct their own meaning in something, something. So therefore, we cover a little bit of all the different kinds of curriculum approaches. And I refer mm-hmm. to it as the curriculum palette and uh, students pick and choose. If I were going to go back into the classroom, though, I'd be a tap teacher. I really think that that is something that's essential. I also have a heavy emphasis on community Mm -hmm. and social practice, as well as social justice in my own classroom. Yeah, I love that idea of a curriculum palette. That's great. Like a great way to word it. So answering that question, being a multiple subject teacher, I'm not familiar actually with these terms. I'm learning them right now. But they sound, it sounds pretty cool. I really believe in student choice. My teaching philosophy is mostly based on just being culturally relevant and responsive with a focus on that social justice lens of like everything that I teach. And I just really value advocacy from a critical and cultural perspective. Yeah, awesome. And then now thinking about that teaching style, how are you handling this pandemic and changing your teaching situation dramatically? I know this is a discussion that could go on for a long time, but if you could maybe just briefly share, like, are you going to be online, on a cart, hybrid? What's your sort of situation for this coming school year? Well, for me, being at two different different schools. I have two different situations. So one school, I will actually be on a cart. (laughs) And the other school, I will actually have my students come to my classroom. So we'll have face-to-face instruction. So in the past, it was, of course, a lot easier to have both schools doing the same thing because then I could keep the same lessons going. But now it's going to be a little more difficult because I can't necessarily do the same things that I would do on a cart in the classroom. Or maybe I could, they'll just be a little different. So I have to work through that a little bit. Yeah. It'll be modified. I was actually in that position this past year. I had one school on a cart and the other school in my classroom, but without all the other like precautions necessary. (laughs) But I kind of tried to follow the same thing and just made some modifications for the cart. I will definitely need to look into that. That will definitely make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about it at some point later too. My district initially was leaning towards the hybrid model, but our teachers union and families kind of had a a lot of debate with that. So they just recently the other day announced that we'll be online for the entire first semester. Wow. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. When the teachers and parents can actually have a little bit of voice (laughs) in these decisions. Good. 
Do you feel relieved with that? I do. Yeah. 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 I had to, when initially they were going with the hybrid model, a lot of art teachers in my district, we all kind of banded together to create imagery to help advocate for Mm -hmm. the reasons why we thought online learning would work better and be safer. Yeah, that's great. My school is doing hybrid with highly recommended online as much as possible. I'll be doing synchronous meetings with my students. And, you know, my students are going to be in the classroom with with teachers like these wonderful teachers on on the team. So I'm not sure exactly how that's going to look. Honestly, we'll, we'll see. When, when it gets closer. Yeah, student teaching. Oh, wow. Yeah. I actually had a student teacher toward the end <laughs> of mm. the last semester, and it was very interesting mm. for her because we did the online thing together too. Ah. We're going in person as of now. I teach outside of St. Louis, Missouri, but there are options for hybrid and full virtual. And I think we're going to transition as we see the numbers in the next few weeks. My plan is to make it as virtual as possible because I I don't know if it's sustainable to stay and I want it to be as consistent as possible for the students. So I'm pretty much offering a virtual option, like it's a virtual course, but I'll be there in person. And Mm -hmm. my focus is going to be just trying to build community because I think that's what the kids are really craving more than anything. Mm -hmm. So to have the instructional component online and then like be there to support them and build community. And while, because I honestly don't foresee us going longer than two, three weeks, unfortunately, just to get them into groups, maybe not necessarily work together, but give them like an online platform where they can have like four kids to go to and talk to. Mm -hmm. And because I just see that with the high school students that really suffering in that area. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where we are now. Yeah. Those are really great ideas for how to handle the situation. I think that's that's helpful to hear. Yeah. So I am in LA and I'm in uh, LA Unified. So we, our district had made the decision to start distance learning, virtual learning online shortly mm-hmm. before the governor made the decision for the state for all of us to start. And so I'm just kind of grateful for that. But who knows when we'll go back because my union is still in negotiations with the district. Yeah. And last kind of like getting to know us question, how did the this collaboration come about? How did you start collaborating? And then also kind of what, if there are sort of different roles that you're taking, like is someone managing the website? Is someone else doing like social media stuff? Is somebody else like setting up all the lessons or is it really like everybody's doing a little bit of everything? Yeah, I can start. So uh, I guess initially when COVID had started, basically before the pandemic, I had stopped using social media. And then when we had to lock down, I found myself on there again. I reactivated my Facebook because I was really craving a community of art teachers that I was no longer able to have in person. So the other art teacher, I have a part-time art teacher at my school, Christy. She had told me about a few Facebook groups for art teachers where they were posting ideas for online learning because I had no idea what I was doing. And so I found myself on those groups and it was really great, the sense of community and camaraderie that was on those groups. But then as the stories of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd began to emerge, I noticed that there was a shift of tone in those groups and some art teachers were posting questionable comments on there. 
and they were either those comments were either being ignored or affirmed by other art teachers. <laughs> so things like I don't see color or elementary school students are too young to talk about race and Ugh. we need to keep politics out of the classroom. So when I was seeing that, I just began responding to them. And when I did that, I started to sense that a lot of teachers had no idea how their comments were actually rooted in systemic racism. And as I was having these conversations, I felt that a lot of them were well-intentioned, but Mm ill-informed. So I started to share links to videos and articles with them. And as I was doing that, I was compiling a Google Doc to keep track, to help share. And then from there is when the, oh, you can't teach this in elementary school came from. And I thought to myself, that's not true because I've done it. So I started sharing my lessons that I had done. And then I was like, I know there are other art teachers out there that have done this. Let me seek them out. So I started a second Google Doc with art lessons. And initially, I reached out to Nyla, who's not with us right now. So Nyla, I reached out to her asking if she wanted to share some of her lessons. And then she had me reach out to Francesca. And then initially, it was just us three with the lessons. And then that Google Doc turned into a Google site. And initially, we did the elements of an anti-racist art teacher. Mm -hmm. Those images, we initially just interested me because I just the idea just kind of came about and we didn't think much of it when we shared it. It was just a way to get attention to the site that we were developing. And that kind of took off. And then (laughs) as that happened, we started making other connections and reaching out to other people and kind of growing. So I'll let everyone else kind of chime in on how they found themselves. Yeah. So I reached out to Nyla, just appreciating her page. And then she responded and essentially I was like, oh, wow, I really like your work that you're doing that I'm seeing on your Instagram page, Teach for Tomorrow. And so would you want to collaborate slash put some of your lessons up? And I was like, that sounds really cool. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. I was in the same boat as Paula Lee's, you know, like anti-racism. I didn't even call it that. I just talk about being a Black woman. And like, I would see all my kids' eyes just get really wide because I teach in a majority white school, Mm -hmm. white, you know, population. And I just thought, you know, I always shared my stories. I was shared artists that look like me, you know, that I that resonated with me. And so for me, Paula Lee's, it was the same thing. It's just like a way of being, you know, and I went on Facebook and I must have missed the other page because it was in June and I was looking for, I'm sure there are like art teachers out there united against racism and like developing a curriculum. So let me look for them. And I honestly couldn't find the page. So I was like, okay, how do, I'm so not tech savvy. Everybody here knows this, especially Paula Lee's. So I was like, let me me press this thing that says start group. And then I literally just started a group uh, that was art teachers for anti-racist curriculum. And that's what I wanted to focus on. I didn't want to just talk about being anti-racist and what that looks like. And I know that we all need work in that area and growing that side of us and that part of us. But I really wanted to do what Paula Lee's was doing with her website, like bring together a curriculum 
the teachers can take into their classroom. Because the one thing I keep hearing from educators from all backgrounds and subject areas is I don't know where to find resources to teach this stuff, you know? And I know it's out there, but I also understand their struggle because up to like five years ago, you couldn't even find a list of black artists. Like it was difficult, right? To come across and it was work, you know? So I just thought with our combined powers, we can come together and gather these resources. So that's never an excuse, you know? That's something that we can go into the classroom armed. And then Paula Lee's, I just, I saw the page she was creating and I loved it and I kept sharing it out or like bringing attention to it. I found myself constantly tagging her. Hey, Paula Lee's has... <laughs> this hey check this out when someone would ask and then I think somehow you and I we connected right Paulies and that's how that came to be and um, I'm excited to see the collaboration happening because it's definitely given me encouragement you know because you do feel kind of alone like you were saying Paulies like you're the only person who cares about this and I mean that page says there's like over a thousand followers now there's way more of us than anyone could realize right so yeah. And I found, I think I joined your group recently because I had found another anti-racist art educators group, which is also encouraging. Like there's two of them <laughs> and they both have a lot of people. Yes. I'm, I belong to that one too, now that I found it. So I've been getting a lot of good stuff there too. So yeah. Well, I was really happy when Paulise reached out to me because the kind of the same thing happened to me. I was on Facebook during the pandemic and I, you know, there was so much divisive conversation and I felt like, I guess originally I was just naive and I thought, you know, all of us clearly realize that there's a problem and that there's a way that we as teachers can solve this problem. But <laughs> apparently not. So I got very discouraged. Uh, I almost, you know, deleted myself from those groups. But at the same time, I kind of felt like, well, if I'm deleting myself from these groups, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily say arguing with these people, but just trying to prove a point like, hey, this is an issue. We need to talk about this. So it came right, right on time for me when she reached out and started talking about this site. So I am truly, truly grateful. And I've actually seen some people turn around and say, hey, you know, this is something we need to be talking about. And this isn't something we should just talk to, you know, high school students or middle school students about. We can talk to elementary school students about this too. So thank you so much, Paulise. That was right on time. <laughs> and by the way, she has an amazing idea that we're going to be launching in the next few days, but artist interviews where we're actually reaching out to Black, Indigenous, and people of color artists and interviewing them and uh, getting more insight and feedback into their thought process and artwork. That's awesome. There is, there's a site called The Studio Visit that has exactly that interviews with Black and I don't know if it's only Black or if it's Black and Indigenous and people of color but artists, but that might be, those are long interviews and definitely not geared for like a child audience. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I came to the group similar to some of the others. Paula Lee invited me in and I felt very, you know, honored and grateful to be a part of this wonderful team. I've been teaching about this stuff for about 30 years and I know that dates me now, <laughs> but because <laughs> the, <laughs> the rest of the team, they're, they're just, young 
and fresh and I love it. And um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to learning more from them as we move forward. And, but th- th- it's such a challenge because there, there are not enough resources out there and what is out there is difficult to find. And so having, you know, a central location like this, also just to be able to talk about these things in, in a safe environment is important. As a professor over the years, I've even had challenges in my own classroom with with my teachers to be students you know they they don't want to focus on this they're 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 wrapped up with you know looking at skill based learning and mm. i really try to focus on that you know you bring yourself into the classroom mm. and the world is there is present with your students so th- this needs to be front and center yeah absolutely i think it's so valuable that there is such a range within all of you that, you know, you've, you cover different grade levels, even different subjects to some extent with Tamara and different styles, methodologies, all of that I think is really helpful and important. So I have kind of two different directions I want to go. So one is just talking about teaching during a pandemic. So how to, you know, I feel like the resources you're creating are incredible and so needed and exactly what some of you were saying that a lot of teachers might want to move in this direction, but don't know how. So you've created all of this amazing content. What advice would you give teachers who are like looking to use that, but teaching online in the fall? So that's sort of one way we see a lot of teachers having to work now. So thinking just about online and especially like bridging gaps in technology and access, the equity issue there. Do you have any ideas or resources that you can point to? Well, that's a real challenge, I think, for all the teachers out there because of funding and and whatnot. Um, But I think we're finding that many teachers have banned together and, you know, Facebook is just exploded with all these great groups. And so I, I, even with my students, I found myself telling them, join these groups, you know, that, that make these connections. I would give a shout out to a colleague of mine over at Penn State, Dr. Kevin Jenkins, who is a real technology guru and so giving of his expertise and advice that, He's constantly posting on Facebook tips and tricks about using different platforms and and resources and whatnot. I don't know. The others have, I think, have some ideas. I think for online, and well, this is true for both online and in-person teaching, before you do any of this sort of work, you need to first build relationships with your students. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage any art teacher, whether online or in person, the first thing you should be focusing on is building those relationships with your students and letting them know that you care and that you are there for them and that you want to hear what they have to say. So I would definitely start there. And then in terms of uh, online teaching, just working with what you have and encouraging students to be creative with what they have. For example, when I was teaching in online in the spring, a lot of my students didn't have art materials at home. So my first lesson was an unconventional material challenge. Like Because in a way, art is a lot about, there is skills and technique, but a lot of it is just self-expression. And that's what I wanted them to do and how they came about doing that, whether it was a pencil and paper 
or Legos or just encouraging them to think outside the box. Because one thing that, and I'm even now with going back online, I'm worried that people are going to try to mirror an in-person experience online. And those two things are not the same. So right now, even though my district is planning on going online, Mm -hmm. they want us to have the same type of schedule and layout as we would have in person. And to me, that doesn't make sense. We need to be innovative. We need to think outside the box. We need to create experiences for our students that are going to be meaningful, no matter what access they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to add to that, Paula Lee's, like accessibility is huge, you mm-hmm. know, uh, making sure you're offering lessons where the kids can engage with their home and the outside nature or even like community where possible, not to assume they have resources. I'm lucky enough that my principal is giving me some money ahead of time to order supplies so I can make kits for the kids, you know, because that was the big thing missing last year is they just didn't have supplies. So I'm like ordering Ziploc bags and just getting the essentials like color pencils, you know, just the essentials. So they have something to take home, whether they're doing virtual or in person, they're going to need that because sharing supplies is probably not the best idea right now with a pandemic going on. And I've said this before, but like creating a sense of community, like you said, Polylees is really important. I'm trying to figure out a way for the kids to find community within the classroom with just like two or three other kids that they can talk to. What was Ms. Prahana talking about over here? Like, does anyone know, you know, just to have that one other person to go to besides me as well. Mm-hmm. And then just keeping things as consistent as possible. Mm-hmm. If you're going in person, like plan for not being in person. Like you said, mm-hmm. Polylese and teach your class like that, you know, and like you Polylese, I had kids painting with ketchup and mustard. And honestly, they got really into it. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> like you said, it's about expression and not being so driven by the content that you forget like the true purpose for why we fell in love with art to start with. You know, I didn't fall in love with art so I can just learn to shade. It was way more than that, right? So just going back to that, you know. Yeah. So the other method I see or like situation I see teachers going into are being on a cart and a lot of them totally new to being on a cart. So any, I don't know if any of you have experience with that. I know Khadijah is going into it. What advice would you offer there? Yes. Like I mentioned earlier, I really only have experience with this because my art my art room has turned into a Christmas shop during the holidays. So, <laughs> But I think some advice that I would give is to make sure you don't feel like you have to tackle it all at once, especially if it's something new. I mean, kind of go into it easy, you know, maybe start off by just setting expectations and, you know, you're going to be in somebody else's room. So it's not going to be the same as when the kids are actually at your door and you get to greet them and they get to come in and they know where their seat is. Mm -hmm. You're going into somebody else's space. And Paula Lee's talked about how important it is to create a relationship with your students. But in this situation, you really need to create a relationship with the teachers because you're going to be in their space. You know, it's almost like an awkward roommate situation where (laughs) you're hopping into somebody else's space and you don't want to, you know, step on toes or, you know, accidentally use somebody's stapler when they're not the type of person who likes to share a stapler. You'll be surprised what you run into. So just making sure you have a relationship with those teachers. I know the Art of Ed, they do these IGTV videos and 
someone there mentioned, you know, something as simple as sending out an email or a letter saying, hey, I'm going to be in your room this year, as you know, if there's anything that you want me to be aware of, let me know. And hey, also, I might need this amount of space in your room to keep this in here. So I'm not having to carry it around the whole school every day. So just having that conversation, I think that would make things a lot easier for both teachers because it is different. Yeah. And then do you feel like with the classroom teachers, it would also be important to include talking about some of the lessons and bringing in this idea that I'm going to be doing anti-racist education in here and we might be in the same room at the same time. You're going to be there. So if you're not okay with that, like you need to get on board. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's another conversation. You can get kind of awkward because I do know a lot of teachers that I teach with, you know, they, they don't necessarily talk about it because it makes them feel awkward or they're afraid they may say Mm -hmm. the wrong thing or they may not agree with something. So I just feel like that's one of those things you just kind of have to work around because we can't just stay quiet about this situation. I hear so many people say, you know, well, if we talk about it, we'll never get over it. And that (laughs) literally makes no sense to me because if you have cancer, you don't want the doctor to say, well, you know, if we, we're going to spend a couple of months not talking about it and we'll catch back up you know at the end of the year like that doesn't work like that so it's just something we all just got to buckle down and just go with it (laughs) yeah we need like collective therapy we need to talk a lot about it (laughs) exactly yeah and then the last kind of situation that I see that's really challenging at least for me it was last spring is tab teachers I know I had shifted this year to try to be more choice based and sort of going towards tab. But then when I switched to virtual learning, that kind of went out the window and I was like, okay, back to project based. How do I do this? (laughs) So any advice, maybe Abby has some, but any advice for continuing choice based? You know, Rebecca, I found myself doing the same thing just because tab, sometimes you find yourself being in the classroom and encouraging kids to like believe in themselves and like Mm -hmm. tap into that part of themselves. That's not, Mm -hmm. that can't be guided. Like, cause our kids are so used to being guided right through the entire school system. And so I was like, Oh, I want to make this digestible. So I might have to go to discipline based and you just got to fight that urge because like Paula Lee said earlier, it's about tapping into what you believe about art. What's your philosophy about art? You know, if it's about expression, mm-hmm. just let it go, you know, <laughs> try not to be so controlling. And for the kids that struggle without you being there to engage them in dialogue, to tap into themselves, to see where all that choice is going to come from, offering a few choices. So if you're really struggling with what I'm asking you to do in this section, think about these three and which one would you like to do? And so I always have a list of ideas that kids can tap into when they're really struggling, creating that. So it's just a little guidance, but also just being okay with them doing that on their own. Yeah, I like that idea. Almost like a menu that has one option is you create whatever you want to eat, (laughs) whatever you want to make. Yeah. All right. So then getting into the kind of nitty gritty of anti-racist teaching, how would you like to see teachers adjusting their pedagogy beyond just including more, like, I think it's important to include more Black, Indigenous, people of color, more artists in the curriculum and sort of the idea of decolonizing curriculum. 
But is there anything else that you would want to see teachers doing to adjust how they teach? I can answer and then, <laughs> sorry, I don't want to talk too much, but I think that anti-racist teaching is not always about the content. In fact, I think it took, like I said, it took me a long time to even acquire, mm-hmm. Art 21 really helped me. I have to say big shout out to Art 21. Thank you, PBS, uh, because I finally found brown and black artists that I can teach in the classroom, yes. you know, and using their voices, right? It's a 15 minute video about them talking about their ideas and their process. So I started there, you know, so if you don't know where to start, just start with some of those artists and that will organically lead into great conversations about their experiences, their lived experiences, which sometimes have to do with their experience with race, right? But I think the big thing is finding the teachable Mm -hmm. moments. Like when you see something happening in the media that you know doesn't sit well with you, it's not even about politics, but you see racism, how can you bring it into your lessons? You know, we were doing Native American art, uh, specifically uh, Maria Martinez, when the Native man who was singing his song was being made fun of by students who looked like my students, you know? So that was an opportunity opportunity to bring in what we learned about the sacred nature of song and masks and art in Native communities and how they're not to be made fun of or taken, you know, and not understanding the sacredness of that. And it was like something that I had to discuss in my classroom. And I always start with this is not political. So let's come and really talk. What do you see here? And I saw especially my students of color come to life, you know, and really start engaging with that question. And so being anti-racist in the classroom is about using current events. It's about just talking about people of color and their experiences. You know, when you hear something in the classroom about a stereotypical thing or notion that people have about someone of color, like addressing it in the moment and talking about what was said. So it's about the class culture as much as it is about the content and then culturally responsive teaching, like making sure you have posters in your classroom that represent a spectrum of people, you know, not just dead white men, right? (laughs) And things like that. So it's, it's, you can access it anywhere is what I'm saying. So it doesn't even have to be just through your content and it does take a lot of courage and that courage is not easy Mm -hmm. to come across. It hasn't always been easy for me. So mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Abby, especially about the teachable moments. I, I think it's really a cop out and an easy way out to just kind of avoid when something is is happening either like in the world or something is said in the classroom. And so it's really important to kind of protect those students who are being affected by those comments and addressing it like right away mm-hmm. and really honoring them. Mm-hmm. I would also say expanding to anti-bias so queer artists artists mm-hmm. with disabilities etc just like having that social justice lens yeah. and really focusing on empowering students with stories of power resilience resistance mm-hmm. and not to reduce black indigenous people of color mm-hmm. to struggle because that's not their sole experience or existence mm-hmm. and so i'd also say self-reflection and doing the reading examine one's own biases and knowledge when it comes to not just the content, but also the style and the way you're presenting your teaching and your interactions in the classroom, because we're like swimming in this society that is upholding white supremacy, right? And and like colonialist values. And so that's like seeping into like our brains or students' brains. And so we we should be questioning, why do I feel this way? Like, why do I think that? And really,
really, I mean, I have to do it all the time. Like, wait, do I, is that a fact? Or is this like a false narrative that I have just been taught so many times over and over? And so I think that that is a lot of the work I really want to see teachers doing. Yeah. And then really honoring home life and, and vabbing students to validate, affirm, build and bridge. So validate and affirm home culture and build and bridge that to what they're teaching in the classroom. Yeah, excellent. Tamara, that's exactly the, and Abby, some of the same things that I'm, I'm trying to do that work with these pre-service students. And it's, it's always a challenge, but I, I think I start right where Tamara was just talking about with, you know, examining and unpacking your own biases. I actually start out the semester with having my students do an identity mind map and figuring out where their ideas and belief systems come from and then unpacking that to find where where actually are those false narratives or where is that sort of hidden message or the un, the thing that's not being acknowledged? What's missing? And so I think that's real essential for teachers to really start doing that hard work. Yeah, and it is hard work. It's digging into yourself finding those biases. And like you said, Tamara, it is sort of never ending. Like you have to keep checking yourself every day all the time. Be willing to speak up, be willing to admit when you're wrong. You know, I've misstepped, I've made mistakes and, you know, and apologize, you know, don't, don't be too proud to be humble sometimes. And I feel like that also doing that in your classroom in front of your kids can be really Mm. powerful to them to share, you know, I am on this journey and I mess up. And when I'm messed up, I can just Mm -hmm. talk about how I messed up and like what I'm doing now, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kind of modeling that process for them. And then for teachers, this is another kind of tough one, teachers that don't have admin or parental support who are kind of pushing against, you know, we talked about how a lot of teachers had been posting things that were kind of either from a place of caring but ignorance or from a place of like, no, I don't believe in all of this. So teachers that are in a situation where their admin or their parents are coming from that place, what are some ways that they can apply anti-racist practices and curricula or even frame discussions to kind of shift that support without, you know, losing their jobs. (laughs) It's really hard when you don't have the admin support because then you lose your job, right? And then, and it's no longer, you're you're not able to to do that. And so I can understand (sighs) how, where people are coming from when I was not tenured, my first year teaching, and I was not in a school that really wanted me to talk about queer issues. And so I feel like I kind of was mild about my approach. (laughs) And I ended up moving to another school where I felt more comfortable, but I definitely got parent pushback. And so if your admin supports mm-hmm. supports you, then parent pushback is not as much of an issue, right? But I my advice is really check your standards for your state. Right. California, Colorado, New Jersey, Illinois mm-hmm. are all ones that I know of that allow teachers, not just allow, but expect teachers to be talking about LGBTQ history. And so that's something that's really important to do. And just remembering like you're the Mm -hmm. teacher, you have the professional degree to prove it, right? And just remind families that you are coming from the same place they are, right? You're trying to really make their child a better learner, right? And so Mm -hmm. when we're talking about these sort of like social justice issues, it really is important for them to be aware of this, right? Because we're living in a global society and so they need to be culturally competent. So this is really preparing them to work professionally in the future. And so for them, 
them to have this like level of knowledge is can be useful in many ways, right? Like even in a business deal, like just be able to understand like mm-hmm. someone else's cultural perspective or like, you know, not to be offensive to someone else. Like that is very essential in this society. Right. And it's not about, I've heard people say like indoctrination and that's not what it's about. The existing school system is really what's kind of doing that. And so what we're hoping to do is break from that right. and kind of make students critical thinkers and think for themselves. So I'm not trying to have students think exactly the way I think or think exactly the way their parents think. I want them to be making those decisions. So like what, what I'm trying to do is give them just the tools to do that. And I've even had kids come up to me and say, oh, I don't know what to think. I'm hearing this mm-hmm. at home. I'm hearing this at school. I'm hearing this from friends. And I always tell them, well, what do you feel in your heart? Like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not trying to put on any kind of like mindset for them other than just being critical and really like in presenting with art this mm-hmm. is a primary source document and so as art as an art historian what are you taking from that and so that is objective this is a person's perspective and this is their art you are just coming in and analyzing it and that's really setting them up for like actual professional life because they're not going to have someone like a teacher <laughs> as an adult telling them mm-hmm. well this is what you're going to have to do when you analyze this art and like that's not how it works right so yeah and then also if you're having issue with admin or parents sometimes or especially admin bringing research to prove that we, like the work work so I would just google it because there is research out there mm-hmm. saying that this kind of anti-racist anti-bias work is helpful and beneficial and so just coming in with the facts mm-hmm. and like a stack of it I know for me I believe that I would have support from my admin I'm not really sure about parents because I just don't know what the community that I teach in but for me I do have the support from I'm sure my admin but being the only African-American teacher at both schools I don't want to come across I don't know how I don't even know how I feel I would be coming across but I know a lot of teachers at my schools you know they are being anti-racist but they're they're quiet about it and then I'm the only one who is vocal about it so I feel like it would be very beneficial just to find ways to kind of ease your way into having those conversations with your classroom and with the people at your school Um, so just that I know someone mentioned earlier, like just simply hanging certain posters up to get the idea across. And then maybe you can slowly start having conversations about it. And then once you start having conversations about it, you can start having lessons about it. And I think that, is it Tamara? I don't want to say it wrong. Okay. Yes. She mentioned the idea behind critical thinking. I think that's really smart because the way of thinking about this whole issue is very critical. And that's something they always want us to teach kids how to do is how to be critical thinkers. And that's extremely important in this situation. So definitely pushing that as much as you can with your admin. We just have to, I know for me, even for me, I'm not perfect and I'm a part of this group and we're trying to teach other people how to do this. But even for me, I've kind of felt like I don't want to be pushing against what everybody else is doing, but you just have to be brave and find ways that, like ways to support what you are doing so people can realize that it is actually very important. So she brought up a lot of really good points. I know that not everybody has this privilege, but to find an alliance of like teachers and parents in your community to address equity and diversity issues, even just to create a committee is not the right word, but kind of a team of people to address those things. So at least you have people supporting you and it's not just about that one admin and even trying to get your admin into it if possible, I think could help Mm -hmm. because I think you need support outside of yourself for these things. You know, when you're the lone wolf doing all this work and what I'm learning is not, I'm not always alone 
wolf. I just have to seek people out and bring them into the camp. You know, they're there. They might just be like three or four other people, but they're there, you know? (laughs) And also the time right now, I mean, I don't know if I want to say capitalize, but people are becoming a little more aware of these issues. And it's actually, I think, taboo at this point to stand up against a teacher who's trying to promote anti-racist philosophy. I just think it's taboo. Are gonna are people gonna do it? They are, you know, but it this is a time where people are waking up to it. And Tamara, you had hit it off out the ballpark with the content. And like most of the time, I all I have to do is share the artist and their perspective, and all they have to do is analyze it. It's not even my voice, right? So that was like spot on. That's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything everyone else just said. And the only point I want to add is that. The schools that are going to give the most pushback are where you're going to have the most pushback are the schools where the work needs to be done more. Yeah. And I would feel like if you're, if you know you're going to be running into pushback from parents, then that's almost a sign mm-hmm. that it's work that you need to be doing and it's something that needs to be addressed. So just because you're going to receive pushback, don't shy away from it. I like Abby's idea of reaching out to people who you may who may have the same idea process you are, have the same views and values yeah. as you do, because it it, w- it would be extremely hard to approach this situation alone. And I think that's been one of my problems. Like I can conquer it by myself. And it's a lot easier, even with this group and, you know, finding people at my school to gather together and say, hey, this is important. And we think this is important, not just me. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what Paula Lees was saying with it being sort of a sign that it's vital in that place. I'm connecting it in my head to when I've been doing this, you know, anti-bias work within myself, that the moments of surprise, the moments of like, oh, I've never really thought about that. Like, that's a sign that that's a place I need to look. Mm-hmm. Like that's where there's a problem. Yeah. So the next thing is another place where I've seen some kind of pushback and you have touched on this already, but this idea of approaching anti-racist and anti-bias, Tamara, thank you for bringing that in too. Teaching with the youngest students, even as young as preschool, pre-K, I hear so much of that pushback. Oh, but they're too young which we know from research is not the case. So approaching that, any tips on not necessarily like getting past the pushback, but just real tips on how to talk about these issues with the little tiny ones. I'm in grad school right now, and I recently did some research. I found an article Uh, There was a professor, and I don't remember which school, she was working with pre-service teachers, and she was basically researching, you know, how willing are students to go into the classroom as pre-service teachers and teach younger students about issues like this. And she found that several, several of the students were uncomfortable and they didn't want to do it because they felt like the kids were too young. And another comment they made was that the issue was too sad to talk about with the students. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a really interesting article to read because I feel like the youngest students are almost the easiest to teach Mm -hmm. and almost as if they're the ones we really need to be getting to first, you know, because they do understand, you know, if you have that conversation with them on their level, and that's the key, you have to do it on their level 
level, there's a lot it's a lot of conversation that should be had about that. And I know for me, it can be as easy as a picture book, mm-hmm. reading a book to the students and then having a conversation about, you know, well, what happened with these characters or how would you feel if this happened to you? Or, you know, I don't think they're too young. I don't think that the situations are too sad. They see really sad stuff on TV all the time, you know? It's definitely interesting when I hear people say that because there's so much you can do with the younger kids. But I think the best way is definitely using books. Mm-hmm. And toys, I, I can remember growing up and wanting to have baby dolls and mm-hmm. toys that look like me. And you couldn't find it. And of course, that was years and years ago. And it's more accessible now. I grew up in Kansas. And the first time we went back home to Hawaii to see relatives was the first time that I saw people that look like me. Yeah. You know, if students if students can't see themselves in other things in your classroom and you know, that's, that's essential. And so having my own children, I made it a point to have diverse toys and things in, in for not only my students, but my own children. And, you know, it needs to be the norm. It shouldn't be the exception. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of books, one really great book that I think is perfect for pre-K is All the Colors We Are, Todos los Colores Que Somos. Mm by Katie Kissinger. So it offers a simple, scientifically accurate explanation of how skin color is determined by our ancestors, the sun and melanin. So the book Mm -hmm. meant to help free children from the myths and the stereotypes that are associated with skin color so that they can begin to build positive identities as they accept, understand and value the rich, richest and diversity in the world. And also asking questions. So I have a kindergarten lesson that I do where I have them mix their own skin color. And when they do that, I ask them questions. You know, what is color? What is skin? What's skin color? Why would people think that's important? Why is it not important? Why do you think people find it hard Mm -hmm. to talk about this? So just opening up that dialogue, I think you can totally do that with the younger students. Because as everyone mentioned before, they're completely aware of it. So ignoring, ignoring it isn't going to change anything. Right. Yeah. You know, that's actually something I feel like I find myself constantly trying to challenge other people's perceptions on. I don't teach pre-K and I don't have any colleagues at my school who teach pre-K, but we start at kinder and TK and they're doing this work. And I, this past year, I taught first and second grade combo. And I've had a second grader who learned this information at home and and taught the class about the middle passage and brought that up. So like some of these kids actually have the background knowledge. And it's just inviting that I think to the classroom is is important. But we've also Mm -hmm. had heavy discussions on Japanese incarceration during World War II, police brutality, specifically talking about George Floyd. They're the ones who brought it up that week. I, I was hoping someone would, and they did. They had things to say. All of them knew what was going on and exactly how he was murdered. And so like the, the kids are often very aware. And so it's really about how you discuss it. And so if you're discussing it, it doesn't have to be sad, it, like necessarily, because you can discuss it through a lens of resistance and resilience and power, right? Because those stories are there. They might may not have been taught, though, to you. They weren't taught to me 
I had to, I really had an awakening in grad school because the UCLA teacher education program really emphasizes this. And so I learned a lot, but yeah, like making sure that those stories of, of power and it, it really mm-hmm. keeps it positive because then it's like, well, this isn't, this isn't sad if we can fight it and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's really important. And also remembering that that's something that like as adults, we're bringing into the classroom that we have a lot more background knowledge and the gory details of these histories, the kids don't have that. And so it sometimes can be almost more abstract to them. And so they're not thinking about like those sad details as much. And so it's, it's very doable and kids are resilient. So give them credit. (laughs) And like, really, like we don't have to baby them. I teach my second graders, like they're upper grade students. And I tell them that because I started an upper (laughs) and they rise to the occasion. Yes. I love that. So I have a (laughs) three-year-old and so I like, I think Paulise, Khadija, you started that out, Lori, representation, like making sure there are brown and black figures in the books and the toys, all of those things, you know, because we have to counter this negative uh, narrative out there. And I'll share two stories. Being Ethiopian, I come from a land of black people. So I honestly didn't even know I was black until I was nine, you know, 10. I was, it was pointed out to me by my neighbor that her father said that people with black skin are all ugly and criminals and bad people, truly. Like she was an eight-year-old who said this, okay? Another story I have is when I was assisting art classes for camps when I was in college. I was like 20 maybe. And this little boy whose hand I was holding as we were walking to an ice cream shop as a group (laughs) says to me, you know, Abby, you seem really nice. And I was like, thanks. He said, my dad said people with your skin are mean, (laughs) you know, and criminals. This like twice that I've been told people that look like me with brown, black skin are criminals, you know, and these are little kids, five-year-old and an eight-year-old who said this, you know? So sometimes what I hear from teachers is, well, I teach a majority like white population. And so in terms of representation, I don't really have black and brown kids in the grouping of kids that I teach. So it's almost like it's irrelevant because representation is just for brown and black people to understand or know. And it is not. It is especially Mm -hmm. and particularly important for their white peers to hear it because sometimes what they're hearing from their parents, what they're getting from the media is people who are brown and black are not worth it. They're not beautiful They're and have questionable character. So like finding books that don't just talk about the history of black and brown people, but also have representation of black and brown people as scientists and artists and doing these everyday normal things <laughs> that everybody does. That's not questionable, you know? And so I think that representation is everything, starting with books and then introducing them to artists who are just everyday like that, because that's what we are, brown, brown and black people. People are everyday people just living this life and doing the best we can like everybody else, you know? And so I think that's really important. Yeah. And I feel like both of like Abby and Tamara making this point that kids see it. They know what's going on. They're not unaware and giving them some space to unpack it and think about it and talk about it is really important and helpful for them. And no matter, you know, what color these kids are. 
And then I know you have so many amazing lessons and resources on your site. I wanted to ask if you had any kind of favorites you would want to point to, to tell people, well, check out this one. This is like one that I really love or feel like my students responded really well to. So if there are any projects or lessons or even just resources for teachers that you would want to kind of point out, because your site is very rich. It has a lot there. And I do like that it's a little bit like curated, like you have, you know, this is the starter guide. And then here's like resources very well organized. But yeah, if you have any favorites that you'd want to point to. Well, there's one that I want to add to the site soon. Mm -hmm. I really like to start the year off doing our unit itself. So we focus on identity work. And so the person Mm -hmm. I really like to talk about is Frida Kahlo because she's perfect for that. She does self-portraits and or she did. And so I what I also appreciate about Frida is that she's so intersectional, right? Her being bisexual. I say bi in the classroom just to make my life simpler for the little ones. Um, But also she's mixed, right? She's half German and she's half Mexican. She is half Jewish and half Catholic. She struggled with disability and that's like visible in her art. So I really like just starting off the year with that and the kids love it. We watch this vocabulary video on Frida and there's like a line that the students just really connect with. And it's like Frida saying, I used to think I was the strangest person in the world, but then I thought there are so many people in the world. There must be someone just like me and the kids connect with that so much. And we all get like really like emotionally invested and, and it's really, it's really beautiful. And they're like, they constantly say, can we play the Frida video again? And they just love Frida Kahlo because I think it allows for a lot of people to kind of connect with her because of her intersectionality. Yeah. One lesson that I have, so I only have two on there so far. I have a lot more. I just haven't had the time to condense them in a way to like package it to make it more accessible for other uh, art teachers. But there's one I do want to highlight because basically for me, a lot of what I did was through a social justice lens and it was about empowerment and student voice. And then when I taught at, but however, when I ended up in Washington, DC, I was teaching at a private school at a predominantly white school where most of the, I mean, it's Washington, DC. So there's a lot of power and privilege that comes with that. And it really caught me off guard being in that school. So it kind of really opened my eyes to how oblivious my students were to their privilege and power and I felt like what I needed to do was kind of give them some guidance because ultimately they're going to also be probably more likely in the future they're going to hold positions of privilege and power not only now but later on so I have a lesson so it actually started from the school had always done an empty bowls project I don't know if you all are all probably familiar with the empty bowls project so it had been this school tradition. So I kind of got as a new art teacher, I got roped into doing the empty bowls project. And for those of you that aren't familiar, it has to do with hunger. So I wanted to know where the students were with this. So I asked them what I just asked them the question, what they knew about poverty, what is poverty and had them answer. And immediately the things that they started saying were like, oh, poor people are lazy. Homeless people use drugs. It was So it was a lot of stereotypes that came out and that was immediately super concerning to me. So I knew I was like, this is something that I need to address and I need to work on with my students. So I wanted to figure out a way to help them 
self-reflect on that. So the one lesson that I have, I ended up connecting with a local organization in Washington, D.C., who they work to help lift people out of poverty. So many of my students viewed experiencing homelessness as others, and they would often ignore and look away from people in the street. And I really wanted them to put a face and a name to individuals and not other them because everything that they were saying like, oh, those poor people are lazy, homeless people use drugs. It was othering them. So I reached out to the local organization and they have a lot of programs. And one of them is they have a senior center that provides food and resources to those in need in the community. So I worked with them to set up an afternoon where my students would go and meet and interview a senior. So they each got paired with a senior. And I ended up working with their classroom teacher to kind of have them come up with interview questions. And the goal was for them to tell that person's story. So it's to listen to their story and hear what they had to say and what was important to them. So they went, they had the interview. They also took pictures of them or they made copies of some photographs. So I wanted them to create a work of art that showed that person's story, that encapsulated it. So they had the interview, we came back, and then during the beginning of every class that they were working on that art project, I did a little bit of work with them in a little community circle. So we talked about things like poverty and homelessness and systemic racism. So the first day I started off, I showed them the graphic. It depicts the monthly cost of basic living expenses in Washington, D.C. And I shared with them. So I had those numbers, how much it costs for rent, food, everything. And then I shared with them what the minimum wage was. And I had them do the math. I was like, okay, how many hours do you need to work minimum wage to meet these basic living expenses a month? And they were shocked when they realized it was like, two plus full-time jobs. It was over almost a hundred hours a week that someone would have to work minimum wage just to meet their basic needs. And like that, and I didn't sit there and tell them that, like I gave them the information. They came to that kind of conclusion themselves. So then that one student who had initially said like, oh, poor people are lazy. He was like, he's like, wait a second. He's like, that doesn't, he's like, that doesn't seem fair. Like how, so they started to self-reflect on what they had said and they started to kind of examine their own biases. And then, Mm -hmm. so that was one part of it, another part of it. So then the next class we came and we're like, okay, well, if you want to not have to work a hundred hours a week to meet basic living expenses, what would need to happen? And again, I'm asking them the questions, they're guiding it. So they would say, oh, you need to have a good job. So I ask, how do you get a good job? They often say, oh, you go to a good college. Well, how do you go to a good college? Oh, you go to a good school. And then from there, I kind of talk to them about like, are all schools equal? Is the school that you're in right now in a private school in DC, the same as the public school, a couple of neighborhoods over? And they already know that it's not. So just exposing them then making it obvious, having them see it and understand it on their own, I think is really important and really open their eyes to like, okay, well, it is this system. And then we talk also about Ruby Bridges. And then when I mentioned Ruby Bridges, the fact that Ruby Bridges was younger than all of the seniors that they had just interviewed. 
So like then they were like, oh, those people that they had connected with and had started to understand their stories, they kind of added that layer to it. So that was something that we, every class we started off with these types of discussions during the course of the project. And then at the end of the project, we went back to the center and the students with whoever they were paired with, they shared their story. So it was really, I think that was a great project for them to really felt not only self-reflect, but also put a face to others and a name, because I think that that is important, like that us versus them. And it's not, it's us, it's we. So that- well, I'd like to add in on the lessons, a couple of points. One is that not so much a favorite lesson, but the lessons that are disfavorites or, you know, not favorites. I really want to see art teachers stop perpetuating lessons that use cultural appropriation, that ask students to create Mm -hmm. things using sacred imagery or culturally specific imagery that students have no understanding or or connection to. Mask making is something that's very Mm -hmm. common in a lot of art lessons. And a, a little bit of a different twist that I do on mask making is I actually have students explore, you know, going back to their eye their mind map, unpacking who they are, and creating a mask that shows the seen and the unseen on the inside of the mask of who they are, rather than copying other masks. And sometimes I don't even show them masks from other cultures. I actually look to contemporary artists like James Luna, Erica Lord, Will Mm -hmm. Wilson, and look at how they construct a contemporary idea and their own contextualized voice of what identity is. We also talk about misrepresentation and how this idea of otherness, of how someone else has assumptions about, you know, so if you look at your mind map and and you say that you're, you know, Mexican, American, you might be Catholic, you might be uh, this or that, you know, what does that all mean? And how does somebody else see you? And so having a partnership kind of artwork that's created so that someone else can, in a way, kind of bring to the surface, what are their biases or their misconceptions about somebody's identity, and then you're right there to correct them, basically, or to, you know, show them that, well, no, this is how I see myself. I feel like that's a really interesting way to work with pre-service teachers, especially because you're, mm-hmm. you're really kind of forcing them to be brave and have courage to yeah. not only talk to each other about their biases, but also right. receive some of that and respond right. to it. Right. I have to shout out Tab here. This is where Tab is excellent, you know, because with discipline-based, you do have, we're studying masks right now. We're all making masks, you know, versus like, this is a culture we're going to study. And don't copy anything, but be inspired. I always try to say, and I have a lot of work in this area because the way I was taught a lot of times growing up was like to appropriate Lori. And that's something that I have to question a lot of and how I'm teaching. I think a lot of us do. Uh, We are doing it without even knowing we're doing it. We're thinking we're being culturally responsive and we're going the opposite direction, right? So like speaking of that humility, that's something I need to work on because I'm ashamed to say that I have had students copy symbols thinking they'll connect with it better, right? They'll get to know it in a way, in a more intimate way. And so that's something I need to work on on myself. But 
with choice. Uh, I always say get inspired. You're not creating this work of art from another culture. You're not from there. You don't have the, the intimate and the spiritual connection that some of these objects require, you know, for you to even engage with them. So all you can do is what can, what can inspire you from this and the way maybe it's the process, you know, maybe it's a color that you saw that you would like to bring into your work, you know, and so figure out a way not to copy but to appreciate and to find inspiration because that's what every artist should be doing anyways, looking for inspiration, not copying, you know? So just something to add to that. And then another question that's really kind of a selfish question (laughs) is what would you like to hear from other artists who teach? So selfishly, what questions should I be asking people I've, I've kind of added a few questions, just asking people which artists of color they have taught and that they have felt made an impact on students as a way to help build that like library, that knowledge of artists that a lot of us were not taught about in school. But then also I've started asking how they're working towards or how they have been creating an anti-racist environment in their classroom. Are there other questions, other things you'd like to hear from artists who are teaching? I mean, I'll go. No one else is. I'm sorry. I unfortunately always have something to say and it's something I need to work on. But making art relevant, like how do you make connections to not just, Lori, you've said this and brought this to my attention when you and I have been collaborating on a lesson recently is like, share recent artists, you know, tap into the current events of today and how do we navigate that terrain? How do you bring in current events and the now into your art and into how you address social justice issues in the classroom? All of those things like making it this living, breathing thing rather than something to just reflect on from the past. I think it would be valuable too to ask different art teachers what resources they are willing to share with other art teachers. Because I think a lot of times when teachers listen to podcasts like this or, you know, videos that they find on the internet, they're always looking for something that they can use in their classroom. We can all talk about our experiences, you know, and that is, there's something special about that. But I think like having, you know, someone come on and speak about resources that, that really work for them. And that was very, you know, I guess, I wouldn't say life-changing, but it could possibly be life-changing in their classroom. That's something that people are really looking mm-hmm. for. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my experiences I had years ago working at the National Museum of the American Indian was, was really interesting. I was a uh, education fellow there, and one of the interpreters who would give tours of the for the children, so I don't know if this sort of speaks to a little bit of what your question was, but anyway... He, he talked about that when he gave the tours to the kids, that one of the things he would do, would, he would say, he'd ask them a question like, do you know who the Tainos are? And they'd be like, most of them usually are like, uh, no. And then he'd say, well, we're the ones that discovered Columbus. And so it was like a different perspective. So the Tainos are the indigenous people of Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and those areas in there. And so, Paula Elise, I see her smiling over there. I know you guys can't see it because we both have that, that heritage, you know. So I think it's, it's important to, you know, get a different perspective on things and be willing to hear 
hear that. So I purposefully try to find contemporary artists first to share with my students. And I have like a huge whole list of it. And we've, we've all been putting lots of great artists on the website. And then connect, especially with Native Americans, that's been my emphasis area. Because I know Maria, Maria Martinez is a wonderful artist. But there are so many more artists besides Marina Martinez and and others like her, the you know historical artists that have passed on. And I'm not saying not to teach those, but one of the things that has happened with teaching about Native Indigenous cultures of the Americas is often they get relegated to the past and not seen as a living culture, a salient culture that changes. And uh, when we continue to only show examples of artists from either the distant or the, you know, way past, students never become aware of what's happening today. I mean, I've heard all of us at one point or another, another talking about the living experience as being essential. When I worked at the museum, a lot of times people would come in and they'd, they'd be like, mm-hmm. where's the Native American art? You know, I don't see it. It's all over the place because the emphasis at the New York site and the Gustav High Center was contemporary artists. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything else that you guys would want to share as we kind of start to wrap up? Anything we missed? I'm sure there's, I mean, plenty we could keep talking about for ages, but. I do just want to give a shout out to all of the art teachers that have already contributed lessons to the website. So that includes, in addition to everyone in our group and and our team who have all been contributing, some other art educators that have shared so far are Randy Randy Butler, Leela Payne, Jordan Eggers, TJ Reynolds, Mary Saka, Kara Beers, Courtney Beckin, and Camilla Salvatieria-Sin. So a huge shout out to all those art educators who've taken the time and have been willing and open to share their resources. Thank you so, so much. And if anyone listening has a lesson or resources that they would like to share, please head over to our website. We have a lesson submission form on our site, or you could also email us at antiracistartteachers at gmail.com. Yeah. And I'll link to your site when I share the episode. So yeah. Yeah. So there will be links there. And we have an actual domain name now. So we are now antiracistartteachers.org. Awesome. That makes it very easy. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks to Paula Lees for her bravery in getting this all started and bringing us together and, and then, you know, everybody connecting and, and just all the hard work that you all are doing. Yeah. And thank you all for being willing to come on and, and have this conversation and share this. I think it's, it's been really valuable for me hearing and hopefully will be very valuable for listeners. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Paula, Khadija, Abby, Tamara, and Lori. In our discussion, Abby Burhanyu referred to offloading. This is a term I actually didn't know, and we never came back to it. But here's a brief explanation that I found. Offloading denotes relying mostly on the curriculum resources for the delivery of the lesson and giving agency to the materials for guiding instruction. Now, to me, that sounds completely in line with TAB, Teaching for Artistic Behavior. 
Now, another thing that was mentioned, Tamara also mentioned an acronym, VAB, or Validate, Affirm, Build, and Bridge. She talked about validating and affirming home culture and building and bridging that to what you're teaching in the classroom. I've linked to more information about these ideas in the blog post, as well as the artists that the teachers mentioned and the amazing website they have created. Click through the link in the show notes or head to teachingartistpodcast.com to check that out. And don't forget to visit their site, an incredible site with so many resources, antiracistartteachers.org. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.